from west to east and kingdom to kingdom, you're listening to the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. Connecting with Walt is brought to you by Dreams Unlimited Travel, experts at helping you plan the perfect Disney vacation. Visit them on the web at dreamsunlimitedtravel.com. Hello and welcome to episode 152 of the Diz Unplugged Connecting with Walt podcast. I am your host and Diz historian Michael Bowling, and I am joined by my co-host, producer, and good friend Craig Williams. Craig, how are you today? I'm doing just fine. How are you tonight, Michael? Oh, I'm doing well. Thank you. So, you know, I have HBO Max, so I uh, sometimes at lunchtime I'll to I'll watch like I just I decide I'm going to binge watch the classic their vintage Looney Tunes. Mm-hmm. So I started with season one. Have you watched the season one Looney Tunes? The yet? very, very old ones when it's black and white still? Uh-huh. uh-huh. Yeah, I watched some of them. Well, so you've met Foxy, the, the the clone of Mickey Mouse yes. and his girlfriend who doesn't appear to have a name. I had never met him before. That's, wow. I mean, that that was blatant. Yeah, I don't <laughs> That's remember. Mickey Mouse with big ears and a tail. Yeah, I don't remember. I think, I, I can't remember if we talked about it on the show or if I mentioned it. I, I tried to mention it last week, I think, before you and I started recording uh, when we were just, because uh-huh. for everyone who, who doesn't know out there, Michael and I usually talk for a little bit before we actually start recording. So sometimes... I get our, we get our conversations mixed up. Did we do it on microphone or did we do it right before? So yeah, it's I, I that blew me away because when I was scrolling through, I stopped for a second and I was like, wait a minute, was there a time that that uh, that Warner Brothers owned like one Mickey Mouse cartoon and and they've kept it all these years and they're they're sitting on it and no one remembers it or knows about it, but. Uh, it's it was it was eye opening to see that. Yeah, yeah. Well, Rudolph Ising had worked for Walt for a while, and so he was he had worked on those early Looney Tunes, of course, and 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 even the plot of the very first one is similar to Oswald the Lucky Rabbit's Trolley Troubles, and and then and then I was surprised because the song "Smile, Darnia Smile." Well, that they use that in Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. No, I don't remember talking about it. I mean, maybe we did. And I, you know, I'm sure we didn't. It just went out of my mind. But I, I, I guess they didn't make too many of the Foxy cartoons. That I guess they brought him back more recently on the more modern series. I did not know that. So is, yeah, I think so. I'm not sure though. But um, anyway, but yeah, and his girlfriend looks exactly like Minnie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean dresses like her. I mean the whole bit. I mean, yeah. There's no, uh, <laughs> there, there's no uh, getting around the the similarity in images there. So it's it's pretty much straightforward. Yeah. So and then oh, did you sign up for the D twenty three adventures through the Walt Disney Archives virtual event yet? Are you a D twenty three member? I am a D twenty three member. Uh, is that the <laughs> the virtual exhibit that they put together? 
Yeah, yeah, it's the virtual. Uh huh. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't sign up for it. I saw the email about it, and I just I got busy and I forgot about it. So I hope yeah. I can still. Sign I think up. you still can. Yeah, yeah. It looks good. I think it's hosted by Don Hahn, or at least he's a part of it, mm-hmm. along with Becky Klein. So, and it's for, of course, their anniversary. So, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. I signed up right away and have my virtual link and all that kind of stuff. So, anyway, I wish I have to figure out if there's a way I can get it to show on my television. Of course, my home theater system went out again yesterday. So, are you serious? Uh, <laughs> that, 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 yeah, I, I, I just don't believe it. It's just, it never ends. And then I was in queue for, um, you know the the guys to you know the, you know to call and all that stuff well they said okay you're 20 it'll be 24 minute wait and we'll call you back well it was longer than a 24 minute wait and so when they called me back it was to tell me they closed the queue seriously oh i was so ticked <laughs> off yeah yeah that uh that particular chain electronic chain store has not managed um has not managed their their customer service well during this whole COVID-19 pandemic. Anyway, oh well. Uh, that's on my list for tomorrow after work to call them. So, hey, all right. At least and, you have something oh, yeah, to look we, forward been, to. <laughs> oh, yes, yes. <laughs> this is what I want to do. Um, but, um, you know, I got the notice today that, you know, Regal, which is... Uh, prominent chain here is reopening july 10th and you know tenant everybody i don't know what tenant's about but everybody was excited that was going to be the big release the big tentpole film when uh you know movie theaters opened again but they moved their release date and mulan is now the first big film and you know it's going to be interesting to see. Uh, you know, are parents going to feel comfortable taking their children to a theater, or are uh, is Disney going to keep Mulan's release date, or are they going to move it? Because do they want to be the first ones? You know, to yeah. I, yeah, I think it, they it's will. Interesting. It'll keep be it. mm-hmm. yeah, but what's and you know i'm trying to think because you know i'm still because i have a couple surgeries still ahead of me i'm still you know physically distancing and i'm not you know i have not gone to a restaurant yet even though they're open here and everything i still am sequestered as much as i can but i I don't know you know i'm trying to figure out okay is this gonna am i gonna go to the theater to see mulan so i'm still going back and forth with that i'm not sure yeah, it's so. uh, I I will I I'm on the fence about it. So I there are parts of me that that want to go, and I am very excited to get back to movies. So I was actually just talking about that on on a different show that I had to record earlier today. But I was I, I'm I'm very excited for movies, but I want I want to be excited about them in the right atmosphere. So as as COVID started to break out, I pretty much cut off my movie going right away when mm-hmm. when it I realized like, okay, well they, they were very slow to implement like 
half seating inside the theaters. It just, and that was basically the only rule they were doing at first. But, you know, a lot of stuff has changed uh, over the course of all of this. So I, you can be okay with some of it. But I, I got scared away from going to movies very quickly uh, because of everything. And so I'm, I'm not, it's not going to be easy to just kind of go back right away. And, and I think. You know, I was part of the AMC A list, so I paid my flat rate of twenty-two dollars a month, I think, and could see three movies a week. It's probably going to be something that, for the most part, uh, once we see what the the schedules are looking for, I'll, I'll probably end up dropping that and just just go to big tentpole films that I. I really care about and you know if if I'm looking at it from that perspective I am very excited for for Tenet so I love every movie that Christopher Nolan has has made he is just an amazing filmmaker but Mulan to me that's not really it's not it's not a tentpole film it's not I I don't know if it'll be enough to get me into a theater so mm-hmm yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure about me, but because I I like Mulan, so uh, you know, and I've been to China, so you know, I don't know. I have to see how how it goes. But you know, the other interesting thing is, well, you know, you mentioned AMC. You know, there's the whole rumor about you know, are they going to survive? You know, yeah. And um, so hopefully they will, since they're the largest chain. And there's a rumor I've been hearing that 40 percent of theaters in China may not reopen. And that would be a, a huge blow to film studios. Yeah, uh, it's. I mean, it would affect Disney to a certain extent, but I know, I know a lot of other chains, uh, especially not chains, sorry, but other studios like Universal, like when they're releasing a Fast and Furious movie, like they are relying on on china to to really drive up their profits on those movies and a lot of action movies are just like that it's because action is some something that is is pretty universal for the most part all cultures can kind of understand a a good silly action movie for the most part and Mm -hmm. so stuff like that can play well there i mean and we we saw like the struggles that disney has had with china before because a lot of a lot of their movies didn't didn't make it over there for the longest time and star wars was kind of confusing to them so uh, it's it would be a huge blow to other studios if if something like that was to happen when sometimes you need china to to take what would be like a couple hundred million dollar movie domestically and, and turn it into a billion dollar juggernaut worldwide yeah 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 so anyway so yeah i think we're going to see a big change in the film industry over the next few years so anyway but i'll I'll let you know in july 10th when the movie theaters open here if i'm going to (laughs) go see milan or not so anyway just a reminder keep an eye open for story time with michael now that will hope you are enjoying those stories that I share with you each week. And we want to wish everyone a happy Father's Day who's celebrating and who's a dad or a grandfather or who is a uh, who plays a fatherly role in someone's life. 
So it's your day. We hope that you spend it, uh, you know, that every wish comes true and you spend it just as you imagine it, you, as, as you would like it to be. So. Yeah, couldn't have said it better myself. So happy Father's Day to everyone out there. <laughs> Thank you. Happy Father's Day. Well, this week we are continuing our discussion of the groundbreaking Silly Symphony cartoons as part of our Walt Disney's animated cartoon and feature series. In past episodes, we've discussed the Alice comedies, the Oswald the Lucky Rabbit series, and Mickey Mouse's career from Steamboat Willie to Fantasia. And in our last episode, we explored the history of the Silly Symphonies and some of the most noteworthy cartoons in the series. This week, Craig and I have each chosen five of our favorite, or at least they're they're amongst our favorite Silly Symphony cartoons. So, you know, these aren't necessarily our top five, just five that we enjoy or admire. So several of our favorites we've already discussed in our last episode. And when Craig and I compared lists, we matched four out of five. <laughs> so um, I, uh, I went back and I redid my list and all that. So, um, so Craig and I definitely have the same tastes in Silly Symphonies. Mm-hmm. So we're going to each run through our list, and then we're going to talk about them in chronological order. So, Craig, do you want to share your list first? Absolutely. So my list that I chose for the Five Silly Symphonies starts with uh, Santa's Workshop. And then from there, I kept with the same theme, of course, and went into The Night Before Christmas. So the the sequel to, to Santa's Workshop with that. And then I had to, for my third choice, I had to go with The Wise Little Hen. So... Uh, the debut of Donald Duck, but we'll get more in on that. So it seemed like a, an apt choice for me. And then for my fourth choice, I picked Music Land, which is just one of the most beautiful ones that was ever produced, in my opinion. And then for my final choice, my fifth choice, I chose uh, Little Hiawatha, something that, uh, that it was a silly symphony that is very near and dear to my heart so and i'll share more about that when when we get there but that's my list okay okay my list is uh well since craig took christmas i took easter and i have funny little bunnies from 1934 on mine then the flying mouse and i have three orphan kittens so i'm really into the animals here (laughs) and then who killed cock robin and finally mother pluto so, all right. So, well, Craig, we're going to start off with, uh, I think our first one is Santa's Workshop from 1932. So I'm going to let you talk about why is this on your list, and then I'll give a little background and all that on it as well. So, so the reason why I put Santa's Workshop and Night Before Christmas on my list is essentially these are these were one of like the building blocks in my foundation of my my perception of Christmas and I know that's very strange to say but uh, this is one of the cartoons that I did watch when I was growing up that gave me that that ideology ideology of of Santa Claus itself so 
I, you know, I also had other opinions on Santa from other other media that I watched, whether it was Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer or uh, I'll even say uh, A Christmas Story, seeing, seeing Santa in that. That kind of gave me the scarier side of Santa. But Santa's Workshop is, is something that I must have... We either had on a cassette that we taped from Disney Channel or, or it's, I just saw it on Disney Channel all the time but it's it's something that has just become very near and dear to my heart and so santa's santa's workshop of course is is all about that 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 build-up period when they all the elves and and santa are starting to prepare for christmas inside the workshop and they are putting together the toys and every all that entire procedure is gone through and there's a bunch of funny little sight gags as as it's going going along through there and just just really it puts you in a christmas spirit and then of course it it has to it has to end with uh with really getting ready for for christmas so i i love santa's workshop Mm -hmm. yeah this is a good one this is one of my favorites too one i always have to watch at christmas time and uh, this is directed by uh you know Disney legend Wilfred Jackson, who also directed the sequel or the continuation, really, of the story, The Night Before Christmas. And you know, we talked last week about how the the Silly Symphonies were the foundation for the feature films. Uh, this is where everybody learned their craft really and fine-tuned it and you know learned about color and learned about special effects and learned character animation and personality animation and and so i'm going to run through a lot of names in here and that these people went on to make the um, feature film so you know wilford jackson started at the disney studio in 1928 he worked on steamboat willie and he he's the one that pioneered the methods of pre-timing animation with sound. And he would go on to sequence um, direct 11 Disney features. So he didn't totally direct all the features, but he directed sequences in 11 Disney features. And he served as producer-director of the Disneyland television series. So anyway, the, the, the interesting thing is, is I always thought that what was odd was... Um, that Sa- this is like hours before Santa's taking off for his annual flight, and and the elves are just getting around to painting yeah. uh, Santa's sleigh. I thought, you know, talk about procrastinators, and and Santa's still reading letters from boys and girls around the world. So I thought, my goodness, I, I just was a little surprised how unprepared. It's, you know the North Pole is. Yeah, it's very <laughs> last minute, and in, in a lot of ways, especially going through the uh, the tall uh, some of the toys still getting their approval. And uh, honestly, the the only the only real downside I have to Santa's workshop is there are some. You know, it was it was a cartoon of its time, so there are some uh, depictions mm-hmm. that are a little rough around the edges that uh you know just aren't they were appropriate i shouldn't say appropriate back then it was it was more normal back then and now it's it's a little Mm -hmm. bit cringy but uh it's i i try to look past those for the most part because the rest the rest of the cartoon is just it's charming yeah yeah the, the um 
Yeah, they're really were, Clyde Geronimi worked on the toys marching into Santa's bag, and, and in all the silly symphonies, there are, there's a lot of parades and marches and things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so what what Craig's referring to is during the march of toys into the bag, there was a short segment of a black doll riding on a cart carrying four barrels. And who keeps prodding a mechanical donkey, pulling the cart with a stick. And the donkey responds by kicking the cart. And so because of the ethnic caricature, the scene has been removed from recent releases. And in addition, there's another segment where a black doll in the style of Topsy slides down the chute and cries out, Mammy. Now, audiences back then would realize that this is a reference to two films. This is a re- Topsy was a reference to... Um, the film um, Uncle Tom's Cabin. And Mammy was in reference to Al Jolson's blackface act that for the first sound film, uh, you know, that Al Jolson, I mean, they, that's, they promoted that. Al Jolson in blackface was the promotion for that film. Mm-hmm. And he would say Mammy instead of Mama. So these were, in, in this era, these were... I don't know, comedy tropes that were common amongst all the studios and people would have understood them. But today, because we learn and we grow as a society, you know, these have been removed because we do understand that now they're no longer appropriate. So, uh, so some of Walt's top animators worked on the film, um, you know, Art Babbitt, Fred Moore, who would go on to be the animator for Mickey Mouse, Jack Kinney, Nick George, and a lot of the junior animators in Ben Sharpstein's crew. Um, Norm Ferguson animated Santa Claus in his office, and Les Clark handled the elves singing and working on the sleigh. And um, anyway, now there's a scene showing Santa has two stamps for the dolls when he's checking the toys. One says okay, whilst well, the other says NG. And NG was a term used in animation at the time that meant no good, meaning the work would not be used. It wouldn't make it into the film. So if you look carefully at the two shelves behind Santa, they're filled with all the toys marked NG. So mm-hmm. um, the voice of Santa Claus you know, was done by Alan Watson. And he would also provide the voices in other silly symphonies, including Old King Cole in Mother Goose Melodies and in um, Old King Cole itself, and King Neptune in the silly symphony King Neptune, and Papa Noah in Father's Noah's Ark. And the voice of Santa's grumpy elf male secretary was supplied by Pinto Kolvig, and it's rumored that this elf was one of the inspirations for the dwarf Grumpy in Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And of course, Colvig was the voice of Grumpy in that film. So, uh, anyway, and Walt Disney makes a cameo in this film. Did you know that, Craig? I don't think I did. Yeah. As Santa reviews letters from children, the name of Billy Brown comes up, who hasn't washed behind his ears for seven years. So Santa tells a nearby elf to include a cake of soap with Billy's present of a Noah's Ark. And the elf responds, okay, a cake of soap. That voice was done by Walt Disney himself doing his famous falsetto. Oh, I I just don't think I ever put that together. 
Yeah, yeah. And if you love hidden Mickeys, and who doesn't, of course, look closely at the scene near the end of the cartoon where Santa stands on his sleigh and sings to his shelves. On the top of Santa's sack, there's a partially hidden Mickey Mouse toy. And this is only one of two cameo appearances that Mickey made in the Silly Symphonies. And the second time was in the sequel that Mm -hmm. is also on Craig's list, The Night Before Christmas. So, Craig, did you want to talk about why why did you add this one to your list? I added The Night Before Christmas because it's actually, of the two, it's the one I prefer. So, I I love both of them, Mm -hmm. as I said, but... Uh, the nightmare, or the nightmare. Geez, I knew I was going to screw that up at some <laughs> point in this. The night before Christmas is even more magical than than Santa's workshop. So uh, basically, it, it does pick up right as as the other one ends off, and you know it it, it picks up, and you see this idyllic snowy house on on Christmas Eve, and the snow is just pouring mm-hmm. down. The fire is has gone out and the kids there's eight or nine of them all sleeping in bed together and fast asleep and so santa pulls up and lands on the house the reindeer almost fall off the the house and but santa's able to (laughs) to get down that chimney uh kind of shake the the soot off of him and then get to work and this is where it really gets magical. You mentioned the the marching, and there's a lot of marching. Well, uh, that also yeah. happens in this one. So uh, a lot of the toys start marching out as Santa sets up the tree that he does bring for the, the kids. And, and the toys march out of the bag, and they start decorating the tree. You know, they're shooting ornaments onto it. The, the, the one plane's flying around at the the crop trail is kind of all the the garland that is is stringing itself all around the tree while while santa's able to do his also is you know he's filling stockings he's continuing to do his things with a bunch of gags and and that leads to a, a big giant celebration with all the toys dancing and Santa's getting into it and of course the kids the kids do wake up and and they see the Christmas gifts that were were left for them and it's just like that's that feeling that everyone has waking up on Christmas morning as a kid I shouldn't say everyone that's that's what you want everyone to have on on Christmas if they if they have those means and so it just it also embodies that that the classic Christmas sense to it. So I just, I mm-hmm. really, really enjoy mm-hmm. it. it. To me, it is Christmas. Yeah, I agree with you. And you know, that, that style, you know, I love that retro style from the thirties. I love that in Christmas decorations. And mm-hmm. so that's one of the reasons I like this film so much because of course it's made in the thirties. So it is that retro style. And um, we know we've talked on the show about how much Walt loved Christmas. And we've also talked about how much he disliked doing sequels. But Santa's Workshop was a huge success in 1932. And in 1933, it was still being booked into first-run movie theaters in New York. Mm -hmm. So 
they the, the, so the, the studio decided to do not so much a sequel but it was a continuation as Craig pointed out of the original story because in Santa's workshop Santa's taking off at the end well in Night Before Christmas we're on his journey so the storyline of this well it was originally the working title was A Christmas Story and it's very loosely based on the famous Henry Livingston poem, A Visit from St. Nicholas, better known as A Night Before Christmas, that had been credited to Clement Moore. And so there's a few short lines of the famous poem at the beginning and end of the cartoon, and those are sung by Kenny Baker to the original music of Lee Harline. And the story work was done by Bill Cottrell and Webb Smith and some of the other folks in the story um, team. And let, let me go through the. Um, there's one little child is uh, it is animated by Les Clark. He looks up the chimney to catch a tail end view of Santa. But he gets a whole bunch of soot, and but his his little present that's addressed to him is a Scotty puppy, and it was um, and 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 the Scotty puppy licks his face clean. The soot on the face was a blackface gag that's very common in animated cartoons of the period, but is considered, of course, politically incorrect today and, you know, culturally insensitive. So this scene has been cut from some of the releases, but it's still in others. So it sort of depends what what you have, what medium you medium you have as to whether it's in there or not. But mm-hmm. to make up for this missing footage, there is a longer scene of Santa flying away that was taken from the end of Santa's um, workshop. And there is, uh, in the March of the Toys that Craig was talking about, There's uh, you see a lot of what we would call pop, pop cultural references in there. When you look at them, there are characters that, again, audiences of the day would recognize those toys because they were they were cartoon figures or Hollywood figures or radio figures. There was there was a toy cut from this scene. There were very popular radio comedians, Amos and Andy, and um, they were pulling a black doll again because it was based on um, you know the um, Oh gosh, why is his, his name just went out, went out of my head? We just talked about him. Anyway, the doll was saying "Mammy," and so Al Jolson, um, yeah. And um, anyway, so from the jazz singer, and anyway, so the doll says that. So that's been cut from the film, so as well. And again, this is like I said, this is directed by Wilfred um, Jackson. The, um, there is a big leap in animation quality from the first film. Um, Roy Williams, and we know him as the big musketeer on the original Mickey Mouse Club, he animated some of the children and the sorted um, toys and the tree decorations. Ham Lusk worked on the Santa at the fireplace, and Dick Humor was responsible for the animation of Santa at the piano, hitting a sour note, and then of Santa leaving the house. And Hardy Gramatke, he animated the children around the Christmas tree. And Ed Smith 
um, did the animation cycle of children sleeping in bed. Ugo de Orsi did the opening effects scenes of the exterior and interior of the house. And again, these are all names that we should know because they went on the prominence, uh, you know, at the Walt Disney Studio. Now, Santa doesn't talk in this short. He just laughed. And it was actually reused. It was Alan Watson's voice, but they just reused his laugh from Santa's workshop. But, Craig, did you notice this, that in both of those cartoons, Santa only laughs ha-ha-ha. He never laughs ho-ho-ho. Yeah, I did notice that, yeah. Yeah, so I thought, hey, what's going on there? But otherwise, these are delightful. These are two just wonderful, silly symphonies. And you have if they're not on your your Christmas rotation to watch, definitely they should be added to that. Yeah, it's it's just like what you said there. That 1930s Santa to me that is the uh, that is my favorite aesthetic when it comes to mm-hmm. to Santa and Santa decorations and and like old fashioned Christmas and I love I love Disney's caricature of Santa as well too so it's just it's even better so I I do and it, I'm I, I love anything that I can get my hands on that is this exact style. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah. I have a lot of my, so I have quite a few of my parents' ornaments, and they, they of course are this style because they were still being made in the fifties and all that when they were married. So um, anyway, so yeah, that's neat. Well, you know, you got you got Christmas, so I get Easter, and so I chose the funny little bunnies in nineteen thirty four for my list. I love this short. This short just makes me happy. And this is just like, it's just a little story. And it it explores the mystery of the Easter rabbits, because there's a whole lot of them, and how they get ready for Easter. This goes, it's, it's in this beautiful, like, you know, Bunnyville or Bunny Valley or something where it's just gorgeous spring flowers and these beautiful backgrounds and how all the bunnies are making chocolate eggs and chocolate rabbits and how they decorate eggs and they're weaving and filling baskets and and of course they have all these little contraptions um that they they use in order to decorate uh you know decorate all the items because you know a lot of these are huge compared to the little bunnies uh, uh, so you know there's a group of confectioners preparing the candy eggs and the chocolate rabbits and other delicacies and then there's an assembly line of hens that are are just producing a supply of fresh eggs that are then painted by rabbits with colors that they take directly from the rainbow. So they're these brightly colored, uh, you know, eggs. And then the visit ends with another crew of rabbits putting together the giant Easter baskets and loading them in with their other brightly colored cargo and all that for delivery to all the homes that celebrate Easter. So uh, I just think, I just love this one. I just want something happy, you know, to watch. I'll watch the yeah. funny little bunnies. I so, uh, can totally understand why. So I love the uh, the the main funny little bunny song in it. It's uh, mm-hmm. it's very much an, an earworm as, uh, as <laughs> they're singing it. And just... 
with all the different bunnies, there's all sort of different visual gags that you get to see in this one. And I, I think my favorite one is the, uh, the, the bunnies that are chiseling out the, the chocolate rabbits. So yes. I, I don't know why, but that, that always, uh, gives me a little kick. I, I like, like watching it. So it's a, it's an excellent yeah. pick. Yeah. And the, the, when you talk about, uh, the little bunnies of that now even though many of the bunnies are indistinguishable from each other this is where you really see how the studio has mastered personality animation because all of these bunnies have personalities and they're very energetic little bunny personalities and all that so very clever very cleverly and masterfully done exactly Um, and and it's they i was just gonna say yeah they all have the same same look for the most part but then there's there's just some of the different ones thrown in there like the old bunny who can't can't hold the brush straight anymore so his lines are coming out squiggly on the easter egg and then there's uh, the bunnies that you know they they look pretty much all there but they've got those crazy little eyes and then there's even blind bunnies thrown in the mm-hmm. mix too. So they're they're all yeah. they're all there. Just some of them have this different little personality to them. Yeah, and blind bunnies are there weaving the baskets because in the 1930s that was a profession that blind people were commonly in was basket weaving. Really? So uh, yeah. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, now Walt still had 16 months left of his exclusive contract with Technicolor, and he was determined to make the most of it. And so Funny Little Bunnies used color, I think, better than any other Silly Symphony in 1934. Uh, You know, they're painting from the eggs with rainbow colors. Um, The color just bounces off the screen. I mean, it's everywhere in this film, in in Bunny Meadow. You know, which is just a, a flower-filled, delightful place. And the bunnies and all their little colored vests with their little colored bow ties and all that. I mean, it's it's visually just beautiful. Yeah. Um, and it was directed again by Wilfred Jackson. Music was by Frank Churchill and Lee Harline. And the song you talked about, Craig, See the Funny Little Bunnies, that was composed by Frank Churchill. And the lyrics were by Larry Morey. And we're going to hear his name come up quite a bit the main title music um, was written by Churchill and the rest of the score was by Harline and the, the vocals were by the Rhythmettes and they were a vocal group that included Mary Motor, Dorothy Compton and Florence Gill again Florence Gill is a name we're going to hear quite a few times um, in this episode and Funny Little Bonnies won the gold medal award for best animated film in the 1934 um, Venice Film Festival hmm. yeah so anyway so now we go from bunnies to um, hens in, in your next pick yes the the wise little hens so uh, the mm-hmm. debut of Donald Duck and and also a nice little uh nice little tale where you you learn the the value of of hard work so mm-hmm. uh the the wise little hen of course it's the the story about a hen who needs to uh plant all of her uh 
her her food for the winter, corn in particular, and of course she needs to get some help for it. So she goes to two of her neighbors, Peter Pig, as well as Donald Duck, and unfortunately they they decide that they don't want to help out with those chores. They would rather just have fun instead of do the hard work. So uh, of course she she has to still do it because you have to eat during during winter. So she she and her chicks end up planting all of the corn themselves and and so then eventually you have to harvest that corn well donald and and peter still don't want to to do anything at all so now they have they have stomach aches and of course they they couldn't possibly help out at all but uh the the hen does catch them in this act of course and so she has to um she has to find a way to get them back because you know that's that's the only thing you could possibly do so uh, while while she's she cooks up all this this big massive meal and uh, it makes so much that of course she needs she needs their help to eat it all but um but in in that regard so uh they they still have their their belly aches so after they're miraculously uh it's fixed uh they discover that they don't have any of this good food that they're actually left with some some oil and the <laughs> and ends up winning winning the day with that and they just get in a fight over over what they lost out on and it's uh it's just i i love i love donald duck in this this cartoon so i think i think he and peter pig are just entertaining characters i like the lesson that's in it again like a lot of the silly symphonies i think there's just a lot of perfect gag humor the entire way throughout like mm-hmm. all disney disney cartoons uh for that matter so it's just it's a it's a fun one it's it's one that has it provides a lot of humor yeah th- this is one that again if i want something fun to watch and you know that sort of makes me happy and all that this is this is another one i'll watch and a wise little hen it's based on a fairy tale the little red hen and the grain of wheat because you know uh, all this silly symphonies where is where walt tested his ability to tell fairy tales and which led of course to him making the great feature films that he did and the interesting thing is too, you know, like you said, Donald Duck. This is his debut, uh, dancing to the Sailor's Hornpipe. This was his only color appearance until the release of the band concert in 1935, because the Mickey Mouse cartoons from 1928 to 35 were in black and white. Oh, so, yeah, I didn't even and, think about that. It, yeah, yeah. Now the story outline for the wise little hen was circulated around the studio in November 1933, and besides the mother hen in the outline, the principal characters she asked for assistance in planting and harvesting corn were Peter Pig, who originally he was the star of the film, and Donald Duck, along with one other character, Tom Turkey, but Tom was eliminated during the story development which continued to around December 1933 and January 1934. Um, Albert Herter designed the characters, including Donald Duck's sailor's cap and midi blouse. And British actress Florence Gill provided the hen's clucking and voice. She only properly speaks her lines when she asks Peter and Donald if they will help her plant, harvest, or eat her corn. I think Florence Gill made a career out of being a chicken. 
so <laughs> for Disney. And um, Clarence Nash performed the vocals for um, Peter Pig and Donald Duck. Peter Pig's voice, though, sort of creeps me out a little. I don't know why. I think because it's so realistic. So, yeah, I understand that, yeah. Yeah. So, and as we talked about last week, how, you know, Walt, uh, he set up an assembly line process for animation. So in this, uh, the principal animators in this film are mainly cast by sequence. So Art Babbitt handles the introductory scenes of Peter Pig and Donald Duck. Jerry Geronimi animated the hen with her chicks, asking for assistance in planting and harvesting corn from the two. Louis Schmidt handles the sequence of the hens and chicks cultivating their corn. Giles Frenchy de Tremadon, I don't know how you say his name, animates Peter Pig and Donald Duck's second bout of belly aches before the hen discovers their ruse. Dick Humor handles the entire finale. Though um, Wilfred Jackson directed Wise Little Hen, there are some junior animators supervised by Ben Sharpstein credited in the draft. And um, the, the and these artists include Archie Robin, Wolfgang Reitherman, another one of the Nine Old Men, and effects animator Ugo Dorsey. And they um, primarily animated the scenes containing corn, including the delicious-looking sequences of the hen preparing her feast. They did such a good job of making all that food look so tempting at mm-hmm. the end. That melting butter and all that. Now... Near the end of the film, after Peter Pig gives a disgusting look at the bottle of castor oil that the hen has given to him and Donald for their belly aches, and that was a, a common remedy um, in, in, in at that time for upset stomachs and other um, gastrointestinal issues was castor oil. Um, you know, Peter Pig gives a look of thought, and then this moment abruptly cuts to the hen and her chicks enjoying their meal. Well, According to the draft, in between these two scenes, originally, Peter hands Donald the castor oil in a gesture of sort of faux politeness, after which Donald repeats the action. And apparently the film went through a revision after Technicolor photography was already finished. And so um, a silent Technicolor print survives of the original footage, along with an alternate editing of different sequences, including Donald's dance to the sailor's hornpipe, which was intended to run longer than it does in the final final edit. So, and the Silly Symphony was also this was a Sunday comic strip, and they ran a three month long adaptation of the Wise Little Hen from September sixteenth to December sixteenth, nineteen thirty four, and. It was adapted by Ted Osborne and Al Taliaferro into Donald Duck's first appearance in Walt Disney Comics. The interesting thing is Donald, in 1962, is written out of the story. In the 1962 storybook Walt Disney's Storyland, 55 Favorite Stories, there is an adaptation of the cartoon called Mrs. Cackle's Corn. And in this version, Clara Cluck is telling the story, but... By 1962, Donald had grown to be too big a star for this, you know, little bit part in a fairy tale. So they used uh, Daniel Duck instead, and Patsy Pig was substituted for Peter Pig. Anyway, so good choice. I, I love that short. Thank you. Yeah. Well, now we're, we're going to move from um, ducks and pigs and chickens to um, mice here. 
Next on my list is The Flying Mouse of 1934. And this this was produced by Walt Disney and directed by David Hand and was released in 1934. And this is... Uh, this is, uh, you know, to the tune of I Would Like to Be a Bird. There's a young mouse who, you know, as his mother is washing all the children and, you know, putting them in their clothes and all this stuff, he's watching all the little birds. The birds are doing their, uh, they're showing off for each other. They're doing their sort of their aerodynamic tricks and they're singing and chirping and they're all like in their Sunday best outfits, these little birds. And this little mouse is just just enraptured by them and he his biggest wish his biggest dream is to fly and so he tries to fashion wings from a pair of leaves and then and and he thinks okay this i'm going to be able to fly with these so he tells his brothers and sisters to hey watch me and he tries to fly well of course he um it doesn't work to the uh, amusement of his um, brothers. Well, he attempts to use them again, and then he falls into the tub of water that his mother's been washing all his siblings in and clothes and all that, and it splashes onto his sister's new dress, and it shrinks. And so the dress is totally ruined, so he gets spanked by his mother. So he runs off, sniffling and all that, and he sees a butterfly calling for help and she's entrapped in a spider web and the spider is coming to make a meal out of her so he rescues this beautiful butterfly it turns out to be a butterfly fairy and so to reward him um, she says I will give you one wish but think very carefully well he wishes for wings but she says, are you sure about that? So she gives him an out, but he says this is what he wants. So she gives him wings, and they're, they're sort of like bat's wings. And he is thrilled, and he's flying all over the place, and he's sort of dive-bombing and zooming around, you know, his dive-bombing his brothers and all that. But the problem that he soon discovers is that he tries to fit in with the birds and zoom around with them and do tricks. Well, birds won't have anything to do with him. So he's rejected by them. He flies. His, his family hides from him. And so, um, and then he goes into a tree where there's bats. Well, they reject him and they make a point, And there's that this is the other song that he is nothing but a nothing. So he doesn't fit in anywhere with anybody. And so he's feeling very miserable and very sorry for himself. But the butterfly fairy reappears and takes away the mouse's wings, telling him, be yourself and life will smile on you. And that is the lesson that Walt had for all of us in this silly symphony. So so, well, so have you seen this one, Craig? I have. It's not one of my favorites, to be honest with you. Uh, it's. Mm-hmm. I, I think it is the the design of the characters. It's not my my favorite. I I enjoy a little bit more of the stylized, cartoony characters, and not to say that there aren't 
some in, along this cartoon, like the spider in the web. Uh, he definitely has a little bit more of that that classic Disney charm to it. But um, some of the other a- animals along the way are just a little too realistic. So, like, I'm, I. I see most in the villains, like like the spider and the bats. So um, it's not my favorite, but I do like I like the the meaning and the tale behind it. Mm-hmm. So I think mm-hmm. that's that's good. What I what I especially like about this one is that the, besides the moral of the story, is that the the butterfly fairy um, in this it there's a belief that she was the inspiration for the blue fairy of Pinocchio when that film was released six years later. And you can see in her movements and all that, uh, it's it's somewhat reminiscent of her. Of course, in six years, their animation of human movement would improve significantly, um, even in just a couple of years with with the end of the Silly Symphonies. And the use of color in this is very innovative because this silly symphony is set in one day during the course of one day so it starts out very bright and cheerful in the morning but by the time it ends when he's reunited with his family there's this beautiful like purple hue of the setting sun and 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 twilight you know setting in and all during the course of the film you see the colors change as the as the day grows on and then twilight starts to take over it's really Mm -hmm. beautifully done it is so uh, and the film was directed by david hand the music was by frank churchill and bert lewis and frank churchill wrote the songs if i were a bird and you're nothing but a nothing and the lyrics were by larry maury so and oh and then the male voices the uh they were the three rhythm kings who did all the singing there the bird whistles were by marion darlington and the laughing mice were marcelet um garner and we'll hear a little more about her um shortly who she was and the flying mouse and the boy they they actually we see them again the flying mouse boy and his mother make an appearance as spectators in the 1936 mickey mouse cartoon mickey's polo team and um, the interesting thing too is in 1939 and 1940 especially as Walt was sort of getting um, bored of the silly symphonies uh, several of the early Disney short cartoons were considered for shot to shot remakes keeping the bare bones of the original films and even some of the animation but then reworking some of the scenes they reflect their new techniques and their improved animation style but most of these remake projects including a flying mouse were dropped well you know that's half of our combined lists right now and so that gives you quite a few silly symphonies to listen to so i think we're going to continue our list next week so with um We've just finished talking about the flying mouse, so I think now we're going to fly over to um, see what happened this week in Disney history. All right, Craig, well, you know what? This week in Disney history, there were, again, a lot of films opening and a lot of um, things at at Disneyland opening. So, um, So it was a busy week. 
So it was hard to choose. One of the things I almost chose was that um, Who Killed Cock Robin debuted at Radio City Music Hall this week in Disney history. And I thought, oh, well, no, that would probably be too easy. So I don't think I included that. Okay. Well, if you (laughs) forgot and it's in there, then I'm one up already. You'll know. You'll know. You'll know. There's a gift there. Okay, taking a look at the week of June 21st. So, for June 21st, the first film to play at the historic El Capitan Theater since its $14 million renovation went into general release on June 21st, 1991. What is the name of this film? Mm, I remember that it's a live-action movie. It is. I, I know that. Um, and it's one of our favorites. Uh, it was um, Rocketeer. That's right. Absolutely. Starring Bill Campbell, Jennifer Connelly, Alan Arkin, and Timothy Dalton. Yeah, and in this one, a young pilot, Campbell, stumbles onto a prototype jetpack that allows him to become a high-flying masked hero. So it had premiered at the El Capitan Theater in Hollywood two days earlier. And this feature is based on the comic book created by illustrator and comic artist Dave Stevens, who is also a co-writer and co-producer of the film. The Rocketeer will later be nominated for both the Hugo Award for Best Dramatic Presentation and the Saturn Award for Best Science Fiction Film. You know, I recently watched this on Disney Plus again, and this film holds up really well. And I wish it would have done better. I wish it would have been a uh, franchise for the Disney studio because it's thoroughly enjoyable. I really liked it. Yeah, I need to I need to rewatch it. I, I watch it about every three, four years or so, but I like I love Jennifer Connolly in it, but I, I think it's mm-hmm. it's just a great movie all around. Yeah. It is. It's a lot of fun. Okay, June twenty second. Walt Disney Studios' first feature-length cartoon produced in Cinemascope is generally released on June 22, 1955. What is the name of the film? Lady and the Tramp. Absolutely, that's right. And it was directed by Clyde Geronimi, Wilfred Jackson, and Hamilton Lusk. So we've just been talking about some of those silly symphonies they worked on way back in the day. And the film features the voices of Peggy Lee, who has also co-written the music, Barbara Luddy, Larry Roberts, and Bill Thompson. And of course, this is a romantic tale of a sheltered uptown Cocker Spaniel dog and a streetwise downtown mutt. The idea for the film comes from a short story by Ward Green entitled Happy Day. And the Whistling Dog. I should read that someday just to see how close is it. (laughs) Okay, June 23rd. At Disneyland, the first attraction to feature audio animatronic figures patented and first developed by Wet Enterprises opened to the public on June 23rd, 1963. What is this attraction? In 1963, that would be the Enchanted Tiki Room. That is correct. Sponsored by United Airlines, the presentation features over 150 talking, singing, and dancing birds, flowers, a magic fountain, tiki drummers, and tiki totem poles performing the attraction signature tunes, the Tiki 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 Room, and Let's All Sing Like the Birdies Sing. The Hawaiian-themed musical show is hosted by four macaws, Jose, voiced by Wally Bogue from the Golden Horseshoe Review, Michael, who's 
voiced by Fulton Burley, also from the Golden Horseshoe. Pierre, voiced by Ernie Newton. And Fritz, voiced by Thurl Ravenscroft. Of course, we know him best probably from Pirates of the Caribbean and the Haunted Mansion. So um, this is one of my must-do attractions at Disneyland. Me too. You know that, though. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So absolutely. So, um, okay, June 24th. One of Walt Disney's siblings was born in Chicago, Illinois on June 24th, 1893. This was the middle child of the five children born to Elias and Flora Disney. What is this child's name? I, I'm hoping it's it's Roy, because anyone else would be kind of cruel to ask me to try to pull that out of thin air. You mean you don't know all the the names of all the siblings you don't know herbert raymond roy the middle child walter and ruth (laughs) i know you are absolutely (laughs) you're absolutely yeah we've talked about him um yeah you're right roy oliver disney that's right june 24th is his birthday and of course he along with his younger brother walt started what is today the walt disney company roy guided the business side of the walt disney company leaving his brother walt free to produce and create. Roy served as president of Walt Disney Productions from 1945 to 1968 and chairman of the board from 1964 until his passing in 1971. He was a very modest man, and it was Roy's idea to change the name of the Florida park from simply Disney World to Walt Disney World after the passing of his brother in 1966. He was married to Edna Francis in 1925, and Roy was the father, of course, of Roy E. Disney. And there is a homage of Roy O. Disney at um, in Town Square at the Magic Kingdom in Florida on Main Street. He is seated on a park bench beside Minnie Mouse. And um, and he's also outside the Team Disney building at Disney's corporate headquarters in Burbank, California. And of course, that that statue of him on Main Street in Town Square, that's based on a photo of um, Walt sitting with Minnie Mouse. So anyway, so... Anyway, so um, anyway, so that's it. I wish they had that. Re- they had that same statue at Disneyland somewhere. Yeah, I agree. So, all righty, okay. So, um, June twenty fifth, um, the Disneyland Railroad's newest locomotive, number five, officially went into service on June twenty fifth, two thousand and five. Who is the locomotive named for? I know we've talked about this before. And... I, I don't have a guess in me. I, okay. I know I know I know it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was, it was the guy that they say really got Walt into trains. It's the late Ward Kimball. Ward, yep. Yes, the Ward Kimball, who was a Disney animator, musician, Firehouse 5 Plus 2, and, of course, he was a huge railroad fan. fan. So, okay. All right, June 26th. Disneyland's Viewliner. This is a predecessor to the monorail. It debuted on June 26, 1957. The vehicles were designed by Walt Disney Imagineer Bob Gurr. What did he base his designs on? I 
do not know. He based his designs on General Motors' futuristic Las Vegas aerotrain. So, mm. yeah, he was fascinated by their futuristic, um, modern, sleek look. Um, their coaches were constructed by a company, the V-Liners coaches, by a company called Standard Carriage Works, and the locomotives were built in the machine shop of the Walt Disney Studios. The system is made up of two separate narrow-gauge miniature trains that operate alongside portions of the Disneyland Railroad mainline. It's billed by Disneyland as the fastest miniature train in the world, and it is Walt's first attempt at mass transit in the park. The V-Liner will operate until September 1958. Of course, it'll be replaced by the monorail. Okay, June 27th. Maroni Olsen, the voice of the senior angel in the 1946 holiday classic It's a Wonderful Life, is born on June 27, 1889 in Ogden, Utah. He is also the voice of a character in a Diz classic and vintage Disney film. Which character did Maroni Olsen voice? I don't know the answer to this one. See, so you have to you have to think of the angel or who was that? You know, think of his voice. He was Maroni Olsen was the voice of the Magic Mirror in Walt Disney's nineteen thirty seven classic oh. Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Uh, so I, the next I can time do that. You, yeah, yeah, yeah. Next time you watch, it's a wonderful life. You know, that's really the Magic Mirror. <laughs> well, uh, only a couple. I guess months he away redeemed himself. Now. Yeah, I guess he redeemed himself and went to heaven. Well, yes, in in um, in, in Walt Disney World time, yes, Christmas is only two months away. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, not bad. Did very well. Well, we're going to continue next week with the remainder of our list. So, you know, I ended with the flying mouse. Well, I'm going to start with flying birds next week. We're going to start out with the uh, sultry Who Killed Cock Robin. And if that hasn't piqued your interest, um, we're probably going to... We're going to talk about probably the most risque (laughs) of all the silly (laughs) symphonies. And then we're going to get into some marvelous uh, probably one of the best most groundbreaking uh, the craig shows you know music land and then i get into cute and fluffy with the three orphan kittens and i I get into animals and then of course mother pluto and then finally we'll wrap it up with uh one i knew was going to be on craig's list and one of walt disney's uh, as it turns out favorite characters uh, Little Hiawatha so be sure you join us next week to hear what we have to say about those shorts and now that you know what they are you can pre-watch and be all ready to hear what we have to say about those I think uh, basically everything that we've discussed is at least available on on YouTube and you know you can find high quality Mm -hmm. versions of some of them on Disney Plus and uh, and even I know on the Walt Disney Animation YouTube channel they uploaded really good versions of of some uh, some of the silly symphonies throughout the years. I know Musicland specifically has a really clean one mm-hmm. on on YouTube, and uh, you know some of the quality is is varying, but with all of them, where you know it's they they are accessible if you don't have any of those Walt Disney treasure tins, or if you can't 
currently afford to buy a copy on on iTunes or where, wherever you might be able to find them. So they're all they're all accessible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So uh, so um, yeah, so give them a watch, and then we will um, talk about the remaining list next week. So I referred to several books, articles, and websites, and even a record during my research for this episode, including um, the book Walt Disney's Silly Symphonies, a companion to the classic cartoon series by Russell Merritt and J.B. Kaufman, and the record collection Disney, the Silly Symphony Collection, 1929 to 1939. Actually, I think I listened to almost the whole um, set as I prepared for uh, for this um, these two episodes and Russell Merritt and J.B. Kaufman wrote the um, the liner notes mm-hmm. for these which were very helpful. Um, there are several articles online articles that I referred to. Um, Secrets of the Santa cartoons by Jim Corcus for Mouse Planet and Happy Birthday Donald Duck Walt Disney's Wise Little Hen by Devin Baxter for cartoon research and the Disney Wiki. So, Craig, until next time, where can our listeners connect with you on the Diz Unplugged network of shows? As always, you can find me on the various shows I'm on, like the Walt Disney World Edition show, Universal, and, and others. But then you can always find me on social media at uh, on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Teleclaster. What about you, Michael? Well, you can send me messages at michael at wdwinfo.com. Twitter, I'm at mbowling121. Facebook, I'm Michael Bowling. Instagram, I'm Michael Bowling the Diz. And you can connect with me and Craig on Twitter at ConnectingWalt. If you would like to listen to more shows on the history of Walt Disney, his studio, his Imagineers, and Disneyland, check out our Disneyland podcast archives for my Disney history episodes on the link Craig includes in our show notes or at disunplug.com. And look for past episodes of Connecting with Walt on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, where you can subscribe to our show and leave some positive reviews and ratings when possible. So thank you for making us a part of your day. And remember, I only hope that we don't lose sight of one thing that was all started by a man, Walt Disney, and his brother Roy. Roy.